Okay, so I trust that everyone had a good Christmas holiday, um, celebrating the birth of Jesus, but then also eating and receiving presents and laughing with friends and family. I don't know about you, but it seems like um, this year, Christmas was a bit busier than normal. Um, Maybe that's not the case for you. Maybe I'm just turning into an adult for the first time. Um, But um, I noticed that it's it's, it's not just because I have me and my wife now have a one-year-old and that's new for us. And it's not just because it feels we feel like we have eight Christmases to attend to between family and friends. All that busyness is normal. But I think part of the busyness this year of Christmas, the chaos of Christmas was my own fault. I'm going to confess something to you here this morning about um, what I've done. You see, my wife and I decided this year, genuinely decided, we're not going to buy one another gifts this year because we don't need anything from one another. Now, this was not like a gen- this was not like a ploy that my wife set up, where it's like you don't have to buy me anything for Christmas, aka surprise me with something really nice. Okay, not that game. I, we know that game. We didn't play that game. We just said basically we're going to do the stocking stuffer deal. Just get one another nice little cute things that we like, nothing expensive, and, and we'll open one another's stockings for Christmas, right? Well, this is fine and dandy, except for the fact that in my wife's Christmas experience, you see, the stocking was a very big deal in her Christmas experience as a child. That as she approached Christmas Day, the stocking had a lot of cool things that her and her brother would open. And so, see, at the center of her experience was Jesus, and then right next to it was the stocking. This is a big deal in her family, okay? Contrast that with my family. I think I remember opening a stocking twice in my life. Like, why is the sock filled with toys? I didn't understand this. Because we didn't celebrate Christmas in a room with a fireplace half the time. So... This presents a problem for my marriage, okay? Because Christmas Eve rolls around, and I realize I have gotten nothing for my wife. I know, right? <laughs> I'm confessing terrible husbandship this morning. Um, see, I had attempted to buy something for my wife earlier in the week. I got it in the shopping cart, but I got distracted and realized it had not been ordered. Something to go in the stocking. And so Christmas Eve rolls around, and it's Christmas Eve night. I'm at the candlelight service at the Marietta campus leading worship. And just as I finish, I realize, oh my goodness, the wrath of God is coming in the morning unless I do something about this, right? And so we're leaving the service. We're heading to my in-law's house to celebrate a little family get-together for Christmas Eve. And I am thinking at 100 miles a minute, what am I going to do, right? And so Kennedy, my daughter, she's in her PJ. She's at the party. She begins to get fussy, which is my chance, right? I can come away as like superhero husband going to take the daughter out because she's tired. So I'm like, babe... Why don't you let me take Kennedy home because she's tired and I'll get her in bed and you can hang out here for a while. This is my game. So I, I, it's perfect. So I, I walk out the door very calmly, but then I run to my car, shove her in the car seat. I sprint all the way to Walmart as fast as I can because Walmart at this moment is like the embodiment of God's faithfulness to me at this, at this time because it never fails. It's always open, right? So there's a Walmart right across from my house. I speed into Walmart. I unload my child. I'm running toward the front door and there's a policewoman there with a big Christmas smile on saying, I'm sorry, but we're closed. And I said... I doubted God in that moment. I had this theological crisis. I wondered where God was in my life. But nevertheless, I I threw Kennedy into the car seat and I just began praying as loud as I could. Jesus, please let there be a drugstore open. Something, something. Because I know the wrath of God is coming in the morning, as I said. And so I drive downtown Lake Parkway and I make it to a CVS pharmacy. And I know that CVS is open not only because of the open light there in the window, but also because every car in the Town Lake area is parked there. 
It's as if they're handing out gold bricks on Christmas Eve. It's unbelievable. And so I pull into this parking space. I get, up, get Kennedy out of the car. And immediately in the space next to me is this young couple. Their car is filled with trash. And they're just shoving pictures in a picture frame. Frantic getting a gift ready for mom. I was like, yes, there are co-sufferers here in the world with me, right? So I run into CVS. And CVS is a solid 87 degrees. It's a sauna in there. It's awful. And I walk into the, into the store. I get everything I need, the little trinkets that I know that she'll like. I get in line, and you just you can sense the panic in the room. It's tangible, right? And there's a man. There's a man in front of me. He's getting ready to check out, and he's standing there in front of the cashier, the poor cashier who ever regrets applying to CVS at this moment. There he is, and he sets down a, a, a little carton, a carton, a container of cooking oil, a two liter of Coke, and a jar of mayonnaise. And he asks in desperation, "Do I have everything I need here to cook deviled eggs?" This is his question. <laughs> Right, right. The man is so desperate, he's consulting the culinary expertise of an adolescent. Right? She's, she's, like, she's like, I guess. And there's, there's no eggs. I mean, the man is desperate. So I get all my stuff. I run out the door, and there I get in my car. The couple is still shoving pictures in the frame. I make it home. Kennedy's in bed. Amanda never knew until I told her I was going to use this as a sermon illustration. And she, she was fine with it. But the world was saved in that moment. But it's interesting, you know, because Christmas is often troped as this time of peace. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. These kind of jarring words are kind of ringing in our ears so much that they become no different than um, have a nice day that we hear from the cashier, right? We, we dismiss this peace on earth, this time of, of, of serenity. We dismiss it as kind of naive rhetoric, as something reserved for all the musical contributors to Michael Jackson's We Are the World, right? It's something that's a bit out of taste, out of style, that doesn't really work. Well, our passage this morning centers on that exactly. It centers on the peace of God promised by the prophets, and embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. So what I want to do is I want to read Micah 2, I mean Micah 5, 2 through 5, and then I want to read Psalm 13, and then we'll get into the message this morning. This message is a bit unique, and I want to, it's going to be a very frank message this morning, a very honest message that takes seriously the peace of God promised in Micah, but yet takes seriously the suffering that we experience and see in our world. And I want to propose that maybe the best way to approach both realities simultaneously is a specific type of prayer found hidden in the pages of our Bible. So um, let's read this together, Micah 2 through 5. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are least among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. And this one will be their peace. It's Micah, two, Micah 5, 2 through 5. Now, if you want to flip backwards with me to Psalm 13, if you have your Bibles, or you want to program your phone, however you do that. Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord, my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. Let's bow our heads 
in prayer. God, I just ask that over the next few moments that you would anoint my lips to preach your word, um, that I would not perform, but that I would deliver um, your gospel this morning, that we would be transformed into your image. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so let's start with Micah chapter 5. And I just want to kind of walk through it very briefly to see exactly what Micah is doing. Now, Micah is a prophet in the 8th century BC in the southern kingdom of Judah. If you recall your Bible history for a moment, after the reign of Solomon, the, the kingdom of Israel is split into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom retains the name Israel and the southern kingdom takes the name Judah after the tribe that comprises it. And so Micah is, is preaching or prophesying during a time of, of kings Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, which is, Hezekiah is a good king, so it's not like it's a tumultuous time, but nevertheless, they are constantly threatened by the eastern empire of Assyria, who are just these ruthless, beast-like empire. I mean, they were known for filling the streets with blood of the, streets, of, of the cities that they conquered. So Micah's prophesying at a tumultuous time, and Micah's interesting, he's from a southern city called Morasheth, which is basically backwoods nowhere. He's a country boy prophesying to a bunch of city folk in Jerusalem. Okay, that's a good picture for what Micah is doing. And Micah preaches a lot of doom, but then he preaches a lot of hope. There's both found in his book. And this is a passage of hope. This is a messianic promise. And I just want to walk you through it a minute to see exactly what he's talking about. He says, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah. Ephrathah is the name of the clan that lives in Bethlehem. That's not a common word. We know Bethlehem, but we don't know Ephrathah. It's the name of the clan of the people there. Though you are least among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So I want you to see some triggers here. Bethlehem, Ephrathah, where was King David from? He was from Bethlehem. He was a ruler over Israel. And then when Amos talks about David, he talks about David being of a time of ancient Time. So these are all rhetorical triggers to signal in the minds of the readers, hey, he's talking about a ruler that's coming that's going to be in the lineage and a whole lot like David, a good king when Israel was at its peak, according to the scriptures. So this is what he says, out of you will come for me a ruler, right? Well, what will this ruler do? Let's go to verse three. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. Here's the beautiful moment. He will stand and shepherd his flock and the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God. So you have this beautiful image of, of a ruler who is not just ruling nicely, but he's ruling in the strength of God and in the eminence of God as well. So God's nearness is present in this king. Let's look at the next verse. And they will live securely. What a beautiful image. For then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. And this one will be their peace. Literally in the Hebrew, it's, and this one will be peace, period. The word is shalom, and it's not, it doesn't just mean absence of war. It actually means totality of the world being set right again. It means the world being made as God intended the world to be made. So when we read this passage, king in the line of David from Bethlehem, one who will rule in the name of God, one who will set the world right, etc. We're right in thinking, hey, it's Jesus. Easy. Give me a hard one, right? Well, this prophecy is going to be quoted in Matthew chapter 2, and something interesting happens. Something disturbing happens in Matthew chapter 2. And I want you to see, as Matthew quotes this prophecy, what happens. So let's look at Matthew chapter 2 together. You don't have to turn there. You can if you want, but it will be on the screens. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? 
We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. There it is. There's Micah chapter 5, saying that Christ is one not only who comes from Bethlehem, but if we take the entire prophecy, Matthew doesn't quote the entire prophecy, but if we take it, Christ is one who personifies or embodies the world set right. He embodies peace for the world, right? So we have one born who embodies peace. We got it. I want you to see what happens only 10 verse later. The, the incarnation of peace is accompanied by what? Well, let's see. In this passage, this is what happens. After the Magi give their gifts and they're sent away by a dream, they don't return to Herod. Herod gets mad at them, and this is what happens. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And listen to this. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Do you feel the tension? Do you see the problem? A born, one is born who is the personification of peace in the world set right, and he is accompanied by the mass genocide of infants and toddlers. Do you see the tension this morning? And that it doesn't mean that the prophecy is not true, and it doesn't mean that the suffering is not real. Both are coexisting beside one another. I find it disturbingly ironic that as we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, the one who has given us peace, the one who has given us love and hope, the one who is bringing the world to rights, only 10 days earlier of our celebration this year, a man walks into an elementary school and do it, does exactly what he did. You have Herod juxtaposed with the birth of Jesus, and you have Newtown juxtaposed with the celebration of the birth of Jesus. Do you feel the tension this morning? And it's real, and it makes us sick, and it makes us weep. I just want to show you the reality of, Jesus, of that time, and in, in, in the birth of Jesus is still very much present today. I want you to see the headlines only two days after Christmas. These are taken from Google News. This isn't like I didn't have to search to find these. I just hit enter on Google News on Thursday. And this is what came up. I hope you can read them. If not, I'll read them for you. Battle for Syrian city lays both sides' weaknesses bare. The death toll in Syria is now up to over 40,000 people, most of them civilians and many of them women and children. Right? India gang rape victim arrives in Singapore. She's in critical condition. Egypt opposition leaders face incitement probe. That's been in unrest for the last two years. Russia's plan to bar American adoptions upends families. This is a disturbing story. I'm sure many of you have followed this. West Bank Palestinians hurl stones at the Israeli Defense Force and the Israelis. That conflict is millennia old. And then the Utah teachers get free gun training in response to Newtown shooting. No matter where you stand on gun control this morning, the mere fact that our teachers have to learn how to wield weapons shows that we're in a very not peaceful society. Right? And so what I want us to do this morning, I want us to see, I want us to live in both realities this morning. I don't want us to collapse one into the other. I want us to cling to the promises of God while also acknowledging that there's suffering in the world and not denying it or rationalizing it away or sweeping it under a future heaven. I want us to live with both realities and I want it to make us a little nauseous. I want it to make us a little sick. I want, us to keep it, I want it to keep us up at night because it's real and it's there and it's true. Does that make sense? Follow me this morning. Okay. Well, the way that theologians talk about this reality, they talk about it in an already not yet schema. 
It's just a cool word, schema, right? And we're going to, to demonstrate this, we're going to use a timeline and stick figures because that's the best rhetorical tool that I have. All right, here we go. For those of you that don't know what timelines are, the line represents time, okay? So, I'm kidding. There's the prophets. <laughs> the, the prophets are on the left, and they're pointing toward Jesus Christ. And you have the prophets are sad, not because Jesus Christ is coming, but because their lives were miserable. They were like martyred and destroyed, and it's bad news. So the prophets are pointing to Jesus Christ. And then at the coming of Jesus Christ, what does he say? Some of his very first words. The kingdom of heaven is two millennia away. No, kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's near. It's close by, right? So with Jesus Christ comes the inauguration of the kingdom of God into this world, right? Well, two millennia later, here's us. Some of us are happy. Some of us are sad. Um, some of us are a little both. Right? So, and then we're, we're, not, we're living in a world where the kingdom of God is a reality and it's true and it's real and it's moving and advancing across the world. But we're simultaneously living in a world where that kingdom is not yet fully realized. How do you know it's not yet fully realized? Well, have you cried recently because of pain in your life? Well, there you go. It's not yet fully realized. We know this reality. And I call the Holy Spirit arrows for a reason. One of the main reasons, one of the main functions or roles of the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit is not just there to give us pick-me-ups or there to transform us, but the Holy Spirit is there to move all of history and to shift all of history toward the kingdom of God. That is, he's pulling us and all the world into the consummation of God's kingdom. And so we have the already of God's spirit living in us and the not yet of the kingdom of God not yet fully realized. Where is the already found? Well, the already is very apparent. The already is found in the gifts of the spirit. It's found in the, in the infilling of the Holy Spirit. It's found in the breaking of addictions. It's found in the liberation of children from sex trafficking. It's found in the liberation of people from slavery. It's found in the laughter you shared in the car on the way here. It's found in the embrace that we share with friends. It's found all over the place, in the songs we sing and the worship that we have together. Those are tastes of God's kingdom. Them, and they're beautiful and they're lovely. It's found even in art, beautiful art. But where's the not yet? Well, the not yet is all the headlines. The not yet are the headlines of our personal lives. And so what I want to do this morning, I don't want to resolve the tension because I don't know how. <laughs> so I want us to find a response. I want us to find a practice that takes seriously, he will be their peace in Micah and clings to that. And takes seriously 40,000 dead in Syria and clings to that and says, I've got both in my hands, God, and I'm giving them to you. I want to find a practice. I want to find a response. I want to find a lifestyle. And I find it. We may find it in the recesses of our Bibles. We might find it hidden as a gift of God waiting to be received. It's not very common in contemporary church circles. We may find it in the gut-wrenching prayer book of Israel that we call the Psalms. Specifically, the Psalms of Lament. Now, you've encountered the Psalms of Lament before, if you've ever attempted to read through the entire Psalter. Every, first of the year is coming, we're all going to try and read the Bible more. I mean, that's a given. I'm going to read the Bible in a week. Go for it. All right? So, so we start the Psalms, and we get about 20 in, and we realize, man, how many enemies does this man have? Right? If you've ever read the Psalms before, it's like, my enemies are coming to destroy me, the wicked are going to hurt me. I was talking to Trevor. Trevor's attempting, he's our student pastor here, he's attempting to read through the Bible in 90 days and he's doing it, which is incredible, right? And so he, I talked to him a couple weeks ago and he says, I'm really doing it, man. I said, that's great. He goes, I'm in the Psalms though. I said, what does that mean? He goes, it's just a lot of the same stuff. <laughs> so, because what he's talking about is the majority of the Psalms in the Psalter, the Psalms of Lament, the majority of the Psalms are Psalms of Lament. If you want to throw up the next slide, Daryl, you can. What I mean by lament in the Psalms is those Psalms that say things like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Oh my God, I cry out all day long and you do not answer. These disturbing psalms that we read that we really don't know what to do with, right? These are the psalms of lament. Now hear me, they're not suicide notes. They're not like listing all the things that God has done wrong and then just leaving it. No, they're, they're, hopes, they're, they're prayers of hopes, they're prayers of complaint, they're prayers for help. And as I said, they constitute the majority of the psalms. Now think about this for a minute. The majority of contemporary Christian music, I listen to a lot of it because I do worship here. I listen to a lot of contemporary Christian music. The majority of Christian music is what? Happy, happy, joy, joy music. Which is good because we have the joy of the Lord and it's a true reality. We don't need to deny that. That's the already that we have. But if our worship is to mirror the word of God and the majority of the worship in the word of God, at least in the Psalms, is lament, then that radically defines what worship truly is, does it not? Because the worship of God is not just celebrating who God is in our lives, but now lamenting to God, crying out to him and saying, this hurts, do something. Now is quintessential worship. Isn't that beautiful? It's not the exception to worship. It is worship. And so our songs can reflect this and we can say, we can come together and we can say, I'm hurting, do something, I trust you. And that is just as worshipful, if not more than you are exalted above the nations and you are great and I have your joy. We live in both worlds, and it's okay to bring those to God. So they constitute the majority of the psalms, and this is what's beautiful. The, the Hebrew name for the psalms is the tehillim, which means praises. So if the majority of psalms are, are, are laments, then they're also called praises. Really cool. And they follow a certain form or genre. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to take the form or pattern of the lament psalms. Scholars have kind of discerned all lament psalms follow a certain pattern. It's not stream of consciousness. It's not just like this stinks, this stinks, this stinks, do something. It's, 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 a, it's a distinct pattern that unfolds in them. And I want to I take briefly each of the parts and show us maybe a way that we can simultaneously grasp God's promise and the pain of our world. Okay? So let's do that together. The first thing that is found in the lament psalms is called the address, what I call dear God. Okay? So every lament psalm names God at some point and says, God, this one's for you. Now, aren't you really glad you came this morning to learn that the Psalms are addressed to God, right? This is a very simple, you're like, tell me something I don't know, right? Well, here's what's so beautiful about this. If we compare Israel's songbook, Israel's lament Psalms, to the Psalms that are, um, are to other gods that are Israel's neighbors, we get a really stark and beautiful reality. See, there's a big contrast. I'm going to show you a prayer of, of a Babylonian guy to it to the goddess Ishtar. We're not going to read it. We're not even going to hardly look at it. I just want to show you, you're not going to be able to read it. This is the prayer. If you can read that, I need you to tell me how. Okay. Um, so I want to show you, you see the lines there, the white lines, the white brackets. This is all the address to Ishtar telling her how great she is before he ever even gets into his complaint. Look at that. Just page, paragraph after paragraph. The psalm only goes on for another half paragraph. Or another half page. So you see that almost half, if not more than, is just saying, Oh, Ishtar, you are great. You are the greatest. You're the goddess of light. You're the goddess of fertility. You do all things well. All these things before he can ever say, Okay, by the way, my life really stinks. Right? But we just read Psalm 13. What's the address of Psalm 13? This. How long, O Lord? Period. Or question mark. Right? So you have Israel's neighbors pleading, trying to impress, trying to bolster their God, trying to butter them up and just say, God, help me because you're the greatest and you're the most wonderful and I love you. No, the psalmist says the pain is so great and the suffering so deep and I trust in your covenant love so much. I only need to name you and I have your ear. I only need to say, oh, Yahweh, and your face is turning toward me listening. 
See, we only need to name the love of God. We only need to name God's name. We only need to say the name Jesus. We only need to say, we only need to name who he is and he is turning to us in attention. He doesn't need our buttering up. He doesn't need our whatever. Are making him great at the beginning. Our, na- our need, if it's, a, if, it's, if it's strong enough, it's, if the suffering is great enough, we can just approach him and say, God, it hurts. And his ear is toward us. We can say, God, there's 40,000 dead in Syria, and he's listening. He's hearing. It's a beautiful, beautiful contrast. So it just starts with a simple address, oh Lord, or oh my God. So there's, the first is the dear God. The second is the lament, or what I call, we are in pain. Now, this is the part that is most foreign to modern Christian worship. And this is the part where the psalmist doesn't ask God to do anything per se. He's just lamenting how bad the situation is. It's just story time with God. Okay, so in Psalm 13, it's all the questions. He says this, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? This is story time with God. And this is what's so beautiful. Is that, I don't know about you, when you heard the news of Newtown, you mean, your heart breaks, obviously. But then, as believers in Jesus Christ, as believers in God, I don't know about you, but questions just flood my mind. And I'm one that studies this stuff all the time. right? And, and questions just pour over me. What does this mean? How could you let this happen? Where are you? What are you doing? And what Psalm 13 does is it takes all those questions and it says, it's okay to have them. It takes all the questions of our pain, all the whys and the where are you's and the wins and the how longs. And it says, it's okay to have them. Just direct them to the source. Don't go to the blogosphere and, and debate all the theology. You can if you want, but the main point is it's okay to have the questions. Just pose them to the one who can answer them. And you may not get an answer, and your theology may not be right, but nevertheless, God allows it. God legitimates our hearts being poured out to him in whatever way we see fit because of our pain. Isn't that beautiful? The Psalms legitimate our questions. The Psalms legitimate our experiences. We can say, God, I come before you. This is my pain. This is, it's, whether it's my enemies, whether it's my own sin and wrongdoing, whether it's God yourself, whether it's Satan, whatever it is, I come before you and this is my situation. Where are you? What are you doing? Why aren't you answering me? And this is considered worship. Crazy. Crazy thought. So th- I love the way that Craig Broyles talks about this. He says this, the motif of the lament psalms that is most foreign to modern Christian prayer is also the longest, the lament itself. Prayers today usually consist primarily of requests or petitions, but the lament psalms were no mere business agenda or shopping list telling God what to do. The laments testify to the value of simply telling one's story to God. God is not portrayed simply as Mr. Fix-It. He is the supreme listener. The image of God reflected in the Psalms is one who is interested not only in healing, but also in pain. Remarkably, they testify that God can be moved. That as we say, God, my marriage is falling apart. God, my children, they're breaking. God, there's, there's people dying or whatever it is, that God's heart is broken with us. God's heart is turned to us and God is moved and hears it. Which is a beautiful thought. So you have the address, dear God, then the lament describing the suffering that he's experiencing. And then the most, the most common part that we all know is the petition, which I call help, right? 
This is, we all, this is when you're driving on the interstate a little faster than is allowed by law, and you see the blue lights in your, head, in, your, in your rearview mirror, and you begin to say, Oh, Jesus, 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 please, God, no. Please, God, no. Anything, anything to get out of this, God. Oh, please let me. Oh, I pray, Jesus, if, if I forgot my insurance card, just put it in there, like, right now. I, just do whatever you have to do supernaturally. Take my car into the heavens. Whatever you, you know, this is the prayer, right? So we all know this prayer. We've all bargained with God at some point. Even non-believers bargain with God. We get the petition. But in Psalm 13, it's very simple. It moves away from the story and the questions and into the actual commands. He says, look on me and answer, O Lord, my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. What it's doing is it's saying, not only does this painful situation hurt, but you're the only one that can do something about it. And so I'm asking, I'm pleading, I'm commanding you, look on me, answer me, heal me, deliver me, whatever it is. Show me your salvation. Give light to my eyes. Whatever the psalmist says, these are the petitions. This is the explanatory part. We get this part. It takes all the suffering and it puts it in the hands of God and says, you're the only one that can touch it. So that's the petition. That's the help part. And the last part is this. The last part is the we trust you part. This is what's so beautiful. Because every single lament psalm, except for one, Psalm 88, you can read it. It's really sad. But except for one, Psalm 88, all of them, have some turn to praise at the end. So they question and they wrestle and they argue and they plead and they suffer. And then yet every single one of them turns and says, but I will praise you. But I will trust you for you have been good to me. What in the world happens? What happens between my life is in the pits and you've been really good to me and I trust you. Well, some scholars contend that when the psalmists were read in the temple, when the psalms were read in the temple, the worshiper would read these portions and then the priest would approach them right before the turn to trust. And he would say some kind of oracle of salvation that God is with you or God will grant your request, etc. And so then the psalmist would respond by saying, okay, God, I trust you. But that's not for sure. We don't know that that actually happened. All I know is that if we're to be a people of God and to receive the Psalms as the Word of God, this is what's so beautiful, is that the, God, the Psalms are considered the Word of God because they're in the Bible, right? But at the same time, they're Psalms, they're words addressed to God. So you have God's Word to us, our words that we ought to pray back to Him. God fills our mouths with prayers for us, which is beautiful. So what is it? as we begin to be formed into these Psalms, as we begin to express them unto God, we see that we are formed into an identity that moves us from pain to petition, that moves us from pain into promise, that moves us from petition into God's care for us. So if we pray Psalm 13 a hundred times in a day, we begin to move from pain into promise, pain into promise. They form us into a certain type of people. So what happens? What happens if we lose these psalms? What happens if we don't pray these types of prayers? This is what I want to talk about this morning. The three final brief points. Drew, uh, uh, Alan, you can come. What happens if we lose the lament psalms? I contend three things. The first is that we lose ourselves. Walter Brueggemann is an Old Testament scholar who has done this beautiful study a comparison between the lament psalms and object relations theory. Now hear me, all the psychologists and psychiatrists in the room, please forgive me for the next 30 seconds, okay? I'm going to attempt to explain object relations theory as he describes it, or just for the sake of this moment. But it's so beautiful. He talks about that in object relations theory, what happens is the child needs to, ter- to become their autonomous self. And in order for that to happen, they need to know that their selves are validated, their experiences are validated. 
So to give you an experience of that, if a child stubs or scrapes his knee and he looks up to his mother and his mother looks at him and says something like, we don't cry in this family or don't worry about it. Just just suck up the tears. It's all right. If that happens and the child begins to create a facade, that is, it creates a false self that says, mommy doesn't like it when I cry. So I don't cry in front of mommy. I hold my pain here. Right? So it's a false self and it's a false perception of reality. On the other hand, If the child scrapes his knee and looks up to his mother and his mother mirrors the pain back to the child while caring for the child, obviously, but shows it's okay to cry in my presence. It's okay to be hurt in my presence. It's okay to to feel these emotions in my presence. Then the child can truly become a true self. That is, the child knows that it's validated in the mother's presence. Well, he compares this to the lament psalms. If we believe that all God wants from us is a bunch of rhetoric about how good he is, Which is true, the Psalms are filled with that, and we don't need to dismiss that. But if that's all God wants from us, then what we do is we come in here and we create this false self that smiles and lifts our hands and stomps our feet, when in reality, we had just had a knockdown, drag out fight with our spouse the night before over finances or God knows what. You know what I'm talking about? We've argued with our kids, trying to get their clothes on, trying to get here. We're screaming at one another. Then we shut the car doors and it smiles all the way into the door. And I'm trading my sorrows, Jesus. Yes, Lord, right? This is exactly what happens. But what, what, what happens is the Psalms of Lament show us. We don't have to create these false selves that believe in a false God. We can come in here with tears in our eyes. We can come in here with the suffering of the world on our shoulders and say to God, where are you? But then simultaneously turn and say, I trust you. And God says, all of these things are valid in my world. And God looks at us with tears in his own eyes and says, I'm moved for you. My heart has compassion on you. I have pity for you. I hear you. So we need not be false this morning. Maybe we can just be ourselves before God and even sing songs that say things like, how long, God, before you come back? Because it's really, really hard here. And trust that God hears us. Beautiful thoughts. So loss of ourselves, the second, is a loss of a just God. Hear me, if we can't lament and cry out to God and trust that God will change the world, then God just becomes a guarantor of the status quo. You hear me? If God, if we can't cry out to God and say, Syria is a problem. Egypt is a problem. My marriage is a problem. My kids are a problem. My friendships are a problem. My, my whatever, my sickness is a problem. If we can't cry out to God and say those things, then God just becomes the one who guarantees all those realities. And God is no longer just. You hear me? So crying out to God and saying, I, I, lament Psalms guarantee the justice of God that says, God, you will do something about this because you care about it. And we trust God to do it. And then the last, it's the last point. Loss of the already and the not yet. We talked about the timeline, right? We live in both worlds. Well, what better way to contain both of them than God, where are you? I'm hurting. And no matter what, I trust you and I love you and I praise you and I glorify your name because you're good to me and you will be good to me. We take both realities in our hands simultaneously and we present them to God. Let's hear from Craig Broyles once more. This is the way he describes it. These laments also exhibit a realistic faith. One that is bluntly honest with the realities of life, but also takes the promises of God seriously. The faith reflected here does not try to deny reality, mind over matter, or to rationalize the dilemma away, nor does it reject God's word as ineffectual. It recognizes the gap between God's promises and human experience and believes that this dissonance should be presented to God 
for him to resolve. The distance between he will be peace and Herod's slaughtering of children, the distance between the Christ child has come and the Newtown disaster, we take in both hands together and we offer them up to God and say, this tension I don't know what to do with, but it's yours and I trust you with it. And we say, where are you? And yet we say you are near in the same breath. And God calls it all worship. You know, it's interesting. I want to show you just a little diagram. Here we are. We're between the already and the not yet. We stand between the praise and the petition, the promise and the problem. We stand between the healing and the suffering, the resurrection and the crucifixion. We stand between the restoration and the exile. We stand between redemption and slavery. We stand between reconciliation and conflict. We hold both in our hands and we await the day when Micah 5, 5 is a reality for the entire world because it's soon. And I'm not convinced, and I'm convinced that maybe the prayers of the church might make it even a little sooner according to the Psalms of Lament. I love the way we talk about this. You can show, throw up the next slide, Daryl. This is the last slide. See, the cry initiates history. If you can recall the Exodus narrative, what happens? What, call, what, what sparks God to call Moses in Exodus chapter 3? In Exodus chapter 2, Israel is in slavery and they cry. It says that their cry, the groans from their slavery went up to God. God heard, God remembered his covenant, God took note, and God knew their pain. Immediately in the next chapter, what happens? God calls Moses. What happens on the cross? Jesus Christ says, what? Psalm 22 is on his lips. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what happens at, right before his death? He, he says he utters a great cry and he breathes his last. What if it's that cry? What if it's that lament that sparks the resurrection? What if, what if it's the cry of Israel that sparks the exodus? What if it's our cries this morning? What if it's our reaching out to God saying, where are you? And I trust you in the same breath. What if it's that cry that sparks an initiative in history that's never happened before? An initiative in our lives that we've never experienced before? An initiative in this world that God's heart is moved and does something spectacular in us? What if we took the Psalms and God's words seriously and allowed them to be on our breath this morning? The cry initiates history. So our cries might initiate history. And this is what I want to do this morning. It's very simple. What time is it? Okay, good. So it's very simple. I just want us to find groups of maybe two or three. It can be your spouse. It can be somebody you're comfortable, comfortable with. It doesn't have to be someone you don't know. And I just want us to lament together. If you're, in, if you're experiencing pain, then lament there. If, you're, if, if, we're, if the world is good for you and everything seems to be in order, then lament about the several problems that are around us. But I want us to pray Psalm 13 together in our own ways, in our own experiences. If you're uncomfortable with doing this, that's totally fine. You can pray to yourself. You don't have to do this. But I want us to take a moment and I want us to voice our pain before God and understand that it's okay, understand that it's worshipful. And then I want us to turn to trust to God in the same breath. It's going to take five minutes to do this. So if you don't mind going ahead and moving in groups of two or three as you are comfortable. Thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. But I believe that as we cry out to God this morning, that history just might be initiated. I believe this morning that as we cry out to who he is, that maybe he, he might spark something new in our world. He might spark something new across the world. He might spark something new in our lives and our families. Something new might happen. But I want us to feel comfortable crying out to God this morning. 
So if you just take the next few moments and pray one with the other, praying over one another, lamenting to God, trusting God simultaneously, all these kinds of things. I've put the format on the, on the, on the screens. If you want to follow that, that's totally fine. But if not, that's okay. And then I'm going to conclude with a prayer for one of our congregation members here, a regular community member, and we'll conclude and be done. But I want us to cry out to God together. So as you feel led and comfortable, why don't you go ahead and do that? If you're still praying, that's okay. I just want to bring to us a need. Our community this morning, um, uh, volunteers, uh, regular volunteers in, in this congregation, Brian and Kristen Smith, um, they just had a little boy Friday named Turner. Um, he was born a couple weeks early. The doctors are going to uh, keep him and watch him closely over the next couple days to make sure everything's developing fine. But we want to pray for him this morning. We want to pray that Turner develops healthily, that he uh, everything goes right with the doctors and that he's, being a, he's, he's able to go home soon with his parents and that everything there turns out well. So I want to I lift that cry up to God. And then I'm going to pray Psalm 13 um, once more together. Um, and then we'll we'll conclude the service. But let's go before God as you already have in prayer. God, I trust. I trust, Lord God, that, that you've heard the cries of the people in this room, Lord God, that the tears are real, that your heart is moved. God, that, that you're mirroring the pain of, of your people back to them. That as we cry, you cry. As we hurt, you hurt. That your heart has compassion on us. We, we, we thank you for that, God. We simultaneously say that we, that we hurt and we question and we wonder and we accuse, but at the same time we trust. We bring those two realities together. And so I just pray over every prayer in this room this morning, every cry that has gone forth. I ask that it would be magnified before your throne today. That just as we can come in the covenant blood of Jesus Christ to know that we can boldly enter your throne room, Lord God, that these prayers would be heard, that these, cry was, that these cries, as they sparked today and continue in the weeks and months ahead, Lord God, that, that this would spark your history in the world. That maybe as we've grown together, your coming gets a little closer. So hear us work, act, and move in surprising ways. Lord God, we offer up Brian and Kristen Smith and little Turner to you, God. We, we, we offer up him, and we just ask, Lord God, that you would take Turner in your hands. And we ask that, Lord God, as, as if there are any complications and any worries there, Lord God, and all the pain that they're experiencing, Lord God, that you would be near them, that you would be close to them, that you would turn your face, and that you would act in a healing manner in, turn, in Turner's body, that you would make sure that he develops healthfully, God, that he develops into a full grown man of God who does your will, Lord God, that your purposes for him would go forth. And so we, we ask that you would act on his behalf and on behalf of that family today. We ask that he would develop to be a healthy baby boy in the name of Jesus Christ. And we trust you to do it because you've been so good to us. So God, with one voice, we offer this prayer together. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord for he has been good to me. We trust that you are our peace now and forever. And we present to you our pain 
and trust that that will be taken care of in your arms as well. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen.